I know you love talking about coronavirus. Sure. And flattening the curve. Flatten the curve, baby. It's, uh, it's just going to be 30 days of flattening the curve. It's just going to be a couple weeks. Come on, you guys. <laughs> They'll save us. They always have. Uh, can you imagine everybody walking around with a scorecold and a hand pump walking into Walmart? The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. They say peer pressure does. (laughs) That one's for our old uh, one-star dude. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there was a time I'd have said that's absurd. Never happened. I can tell. I can by the the look in your eye, the sunrise, you know, landscape behind you, the the cashmere sweater that you're wearing. <laughs> That there's nothing that you would, and the cup of coffee you're drinking, there's nothing you'd like to do more today than talk about flattening the curve. Let's flatten the, the hell out of that curve. We'll flatten it till there, it's not really even, it was a never a curve. It's just a, let's just flatten it. But no, I'm not talking about that curve. Uh-oh. We're talking about... The spiking curve of cave diving fatalities back in the day. Ah. That curve. A curve that I know you can get behind. A curve that I know that you're going to put two <laughs> hands on the wheel and, and, and take that curve at 30 miles an hour. Like, Flatten it. Like I'm Mario Andretti. It. Hey, are you going diving this weekend? Keep your mask clear with the one, the only, PFAR. The professional's choice. 100% all natural, reliable clarity. PFAR. Refill daily. Keep your mask clear. Never fear. PFAR with PFAR. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. You know what time it is. It's that time of season when the temperatures drop up here in Michigan. The ground gets white with snow. The lakes freeze over. Diving isn't as easy to do. Just jump in the water and go diving anymore. You either have to cut a hole in the ice and freeze your ass off for a 20-minute dive. Or you do what a lot of us do, is we get in the vehicles and travel down to northern Florida for some hard-earned, well-deserved cave diving. Well, hard-earned, well-deserved? How did well, we you know, uh, I, think, this. I think 11 months 
of diving in 40 degree water should earn you a trip down to <laughs> some the whole cave country. 70 degree springs. Okay. Okay, so hey, welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast. It is National Cave Diving Month. It is here. Finally. I know it's your favorite time of the Great Dive Podcast year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, get back into that cave dive and talk because we get that that itch and that urge to get back down and do a couple of fun dives. Yeah, it would definitely be a nice change from uh, 36-degree water or whatever the hell the water is. Right. I'm here in 35 some days. I'm uh I'm getting 36 on my computer slash. Yeah, page. takes its uh takes its toll on you. That's tough. And Does take its toll. The, yeah, and with all the coronavirus, COVID nineteen stuff that we've been inundated with on a minute by minute basis since hey March or, be safe. or whatever. Be safe. Don't while go we've been diving. while we've been flattening this never-ending curve as as it seems there was an article written by old cave diver harry on cavediving.com about flattening the curve and uh, how we didn't just flatten this curve we crushed it talking about fatalities and face masks we wore face masks ironically we did (laughs) this is one case where masks Really did work. Well, here, old uh, old Harry starts by saying that in late June, a dive operator in the Gulf region passed along details of a diver fatality off of Pensacola Beach that didn't make the news. What the news story said was that one person died and another was injured after just, quote unquote, coming up too fast. There's a lot more to this than just that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's what the news stories always say. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, he came up too fast because his oxygen tank yeah. was empty. So you're saying the news did a shitty job of reporting. Flatten the curve, Brandon. <laughs> we got to flatten the curve. Uh, the news would never do that. They are, they're concerned about our safety, too. So They are there to provide you. us with the most up-to-date, accurate information mm-hmm. that we need to know. The number of the the constant tally of deaths due to coronavirus going across the screen. Well, well, the underlying story, old Harry mentions, is that two individuals, after taking part in a one afternoon scuba discovery experience, decided that this was all the skills that they needed to attempt a two hundred foot dive off their own boat. What could <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? He says. Are you serious? So their their instructor must have done a really good job emphasizing the need for for proper training and, and experience and, and the the limits to you're supposed to self impose. Listen, he he shook up a bottle of Coca Cola and everything. <laughs> he did the whole Coca Cola bottle. Just don't take the cap off too quick. Just you're just good. Kidding. You're good. He says after the first victim bottomed out his tank, both men raced to the surface. Well, that's where the air is. Yeah, well, right, exactly. <laughs> that's got to be safe up there. 
One made it but had to be airlifted to the chamber. The second victim didn't make it, sinking to the bottom. And a third victim jumped in and brought the body to the surface, getting bent for his trouble. By then, it was too late for victim number two. Yikes. And he says, it was a reminder of days past. What struck me about the story was how rare this sort of incident has become. In the 1950s, fatalities among untrained divers were common. By the 1960s, however, diver training and certification were readily available. You couldn't buy scuba gear or get your tanks filled without that all-important C card. Well, that was an industry-wide agreement. It wasn't a law, though. Right. Yeah. Right. It wasn't a law, but the, the uh, you know all the, the the shops together started making it you know something that they all agreed on in the community yeah. to prevent the fatalities. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I'm not a big fan of just throwing rules out there and you know. This is how we'll make everything safe by making it harder for people to do anything, you know, to do something, whatever it may be. In this case, go scuba diving. But I don't know. Maybe is it, it be, it's because it's perceived as so simple just to breathe underwater and that I'm some weightless. people. You're yeah, weightless. It's got to be easy. It's got to be. I have to believe it's something to that effect because some people will, you know, either go bu- purchase their own equipment, read a couple of uh, They got a special books. on it for $99. How, right. how, how right. hard could it be? Well, in today's world with the internet, I think it'd be insane if you didn't have, you know, at least the industry, industry-wide agreement that, hey, we're not going to sell equipment to uncertified divers. However, right now, I, I don't think anybody checks anything. Oh no! You can uh, uh, you can get it online. You can get online right yeah. now and buy anything you want. Yeah, right. Show up so, right to your house. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe people are a little more timid into that in that adventure. Although I don't know, I see people doing stupid things all the time. I don't know what's changed, man. Well, he says it reminded me also that once that we once had a similar situation in cave diving. Until the early 1990s, anyone could drive up to sites like Madison Blue. Telford, Peacock, Orange Grove, Royal, or Little River, throw on their single aluminum 80, fire up their flashlight, and go cave diving. Fatalities were inevitable. He mentions that in the 70s and 80s, they'd typically see at least one incident a month, sometimes two or more. That's 12 to 18 every year, sometimes as many as two dozen there were repeated calls, he says, by politicians to outlaw cave diving altogether. But fortunately, they never got anywhere. But meanwhile, the body count continued. So what do you think about that? You know, hey, somebody died do so- doing something. We should make that illegal. Every time someone dies doing something, you need to make that illegal. Guess what we're going to do all day? St- <laughs> Stay inside. <laughs> what a Wear life. your mask. Yeah, what a life, man. He says, in the early 90s, things finally changed. Dramatically, untrained diver fatalities in caves became increasingly rare. At the same time, however, we began to see fatalities among certified cave divers. Prior to this, such fatalities had been all but non-existent. He says, we can chalk the certified cave diver fatalities up to the fact so many people were learning to cave dive. A certain number was going to be inevitable. And with advances in equipment and technology, cave divers were beginning to push the envelope in ways that they hadn't before. 
In this article, he wants to discuss the factors that not only flatten the curve of untrained diver fatalities in caves, they all but were eliminated. In other words, what was it that took us from 12 to 18 or more open water diver fatalities every year to two or three per decade in all of the span of just a couple of years? So here, flattening the curve actually existed. And like he says in the title, virtually crushed it to non-existent for the most part. Right. And when you look at, I mean, still, when you look at statistics of cave diver fatalities, I mean, still like the the number one, you know, cause, you know, over all these years is untrained divers. Yeah. You know, divers going beyond their limitations and then, you know, not knowing, you know, those main, main rules which were given to us by old Sheck Exley in Blueprint for Survival, right? Not running that continuous guideline still is that leading cause. Yeah. I th- when did they make that uh, that little video, um, A Deceptively Easy Way to Die? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah. I think yep. that had something to do with it, too. I mean, it, it was like uh, mandatory viewing in... Uh, some case or just regular open water classes mandatory viewing especially down in florida i guess if you were training people down in florida and you were actually using the springs as your your open water site to train you'd have to uh somehow emphasize how dangerous it is to these uh open water divers coming in i think that that's one of the reasons they made it mandatory in that area well yeah because there's a lot of places down there where when you get certified to dive, you're basically in, you know, the, the basin zone of a cave system. So it is deceptively easy to just, I'm just going to look just on the other side of that rock. Just, just get that view there. And then, oh, just one, one more of that, those big boulders I'm going to go swim over to. Then I'll turn around. And then you turn around and you don't realize there's three ways to go now. Yeah. Yeah. Things weren't the same, uh, going back out as they were coming in. I hear you. So the first thing that he mentions is that very thing, right? In 1979, cave diving pioneer Sheck actually published what has become the foundational work on cave diving safety. His booklet, Basic Cave Diving, Blueprint for Survival, which outlines the factors that contribute to cave diving fatalities and how to avoid them, including maintain a continuous guideline to open water, follow the rule of thirds, avoid deep cave dives, and have at least three sources of light. Yeah, the basic uh, basic rules you learn in cave, cave class, I guess. Right, which these were finally becoming a, a collection of accidents. And the, the first time accident analysis was really brought in to the scuba world. Right, which is when you, when you look at that blueprint for survival, which, you know, you can still order order prints of it. You can go, uh, I think the uh, the NSS CDS website. You can still download a, a PDF copy of it. But that's how it starts off, right? He starts off with a story from from back in those early cave diving days of a fatality reads you know he, he writes through it explains what happened and then goes into why yeah 
there's value to always running a continuous guideline all the way back to open water. And then he looks at another accident that happened, explains the accident, and then goes into, this is why we dive the rule of thirds, right? This is why, here's another accident. This is why we always have three light sources. Now, Cave Diver Harry says, curiously, while the book mentions both cavern and cave diver training, this is not listed as one of the rules of accident analysis. For decades later, these rules still form the basis for cave diver training, he says. He says, obviously, there are parts of the book that are clearly dated, being that it was written in uh, the late 70s. However, these are apparent and provide a fascinating insight into how things used to be. More importantly, though, all of the safety information remains as true today as it was then. Right? We're, you still, in training today, we, we still keep all those main rules. Well, I mean, essentially nothing's changed in the, uh, as far as <laughs> if you break those <laughs> rules, you might have a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, the, uh, the equipment has gotten better. The lights have gotten better. You know, yeah. what, what one backup light that we're using nowadays, you know, it, in, in a lot of ways you can sit there and go compared to what was even available in the in the 70s you know one little backup light today is putting right. out more than all three of the lights that they had but you so you could see that some people wanting to get a little lackadaisical on those rules knowing that the battery life is so much better the bulb life is so much better you could probably get away with one little backup light compared to what they were using in the 70s but that's not the case we've kept that rule in place mm -hmm. and it's a hard steadfast rule of you always have three light sources. Right. Blueprint for Survival, he says, began showing up on dive store bookshelves throughout northern Florida soon after its publication and helped save the lives of those who read it who were smart enough to follow the advice. And actually, there is a link to the, uh, the PDF version from the NSSCDS website in this article if you look it up on cavediving.com forward slash curve. Uh, the next thing that he mentions of how they flattened the curve back in the day were the warning signs. Warning. Oh, putting the warning signs at the entries. Yeah, yeah. So he says, odds are the first thing you noticed when you entered an underwater cave for the first time was some sort of a warning sign. These have been around since the dawn of cave diving. They were among our earliest attempts to keep unqualified divers from dying in caves. But it seems to attract like Darwin Award winners. Okay. <laughs> well, that's what that right. sign does. It's like, oh, there's a little Grim Reaper there. Well, <laughs> that's very true. It, it is, you know, it is something that, you know, you've even, I mean, you, you, you see it of, of people in just basic open water gear swimming to that sign as a little, right. little ba badge of honor of, of getting there. And, and he does mention that. He says, but do they work? And it's a tough question to answer. In the 1980s, Jeff Bozanek researched. Bozanek. Yeah. Bo what is it? Bozanek? Bozanek. Jeff Bozen. Bozanek, yeah. He's a, he was a big time. Uh, he, had that, he had a pretty busy website on cave diving, but uh, yeah, he was pretty big back in the day. Bozanek researched this issue, and we are told, decided that warning signs were 10% effective, he says. In 10%, other words, 10% effective. 10%. I'm curious how you arrive at that number. 
Well, what he's saying is for every 10 unqualified divers who would otherwise enter an underwater cave, warning signs like the NSS CDS Grim Reaper sign and the NACD stop sign would be enough to turn away one diver back. And he says, though it may not seem like a lot, for every 100 potential body recoveries, this is 10 that we didn't have to do. Mm-hmm. So something is definitely better than nothing. Agreed. But, you know, that that science is a refreshing sight to see. You know, as, as a relatively new cave diver, I mean, I, I would consider myself still a, a new guy when it comes to cave diving. You know, we don't get to do it all the time. It's a... It's not our local backyard. It's just when we do a trip, you know, once, maybe twice a year. So that's always a, a nice little little mental checkpoint of, yeah, you're, you're really doing a dive, you know, get in the game. Oh, yeah, definitely real dives. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of just get complacent on a lot of dives, especially our, a lot of our local everyday dives that we do. The nice thing about having to do something like that, of of passing that sign, the nice thing about having to tie a reel into a main line, you know, for me, it always is, you know, that's one of those mental triggers of get on page, get in the groove, flip that switch. Right. Now, did you ever have a copy of Ned Deloche's old book? Which one of Ned Deloche's old book? I might the, have it, yeah. The uh, Diver's Guide to Underwater Florida. Yeah, I do have it. And then before that, though, he had the Diver's Guide to the Florida Springs. I don't know if I've got that one. I do have the Underwater Florida one, though. So Harry says that in 1975, the Northern Virginia Dive Center that he had worked for had me take a group of students down to Crystal River. Prior to this, he'd never seen an underwater cavern or cave. The cavern at King Spring looked very different than it does now, he mentions. The opening was bigger, the water was crystal clear, and he was hooked. He says, I wondered if there might be other sites like this. Luckily, the dive store at Port Paradise sold copies of Ned DeLoach's Diver's Guide to the Florida Springs. And it was through this that I learned about Jenny Springs and Peacock and Orange Grove. And fascinated, I planned a return trip as soon as possible. It would be fair to say that had I not found this book, his whole uh, diving life would have completely changed. Hmm. He mentions that the problem with the diver's guide is that it does little to differentiate sites such as Devil's Den and Blue Grotto, which are appropriate for any certified diver, and sites like Madison Blue and Little River, which should only be visited by certified cave divers. Many untrained divers use this book to find their way to caves, which ultimately killed them. He mentions that the Diver's Guide to Florida Springs has not been updated since 2004. And it's becoming harder and harder to find. And given its likely role in diving accidents, it's probably a good thing. So the, the disappearance of that original guidebook yeah. was, was probably thing. helpful. Yeah. Well, like... I remember when I was in... High school, me and some friends went down to Florida, and I had that Ned Deloach book, The Diver's Guide to Underwater Florida. That's how I learned about one spring that wasn't too far from where we were staying. Mm-hmm. And we went went down to, to go and check it out. It was fascinating, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing back then. 
was blown around <laughs> by that that water that coming guy. out of that thing like a rag doll. Next, he mentions that there's better control over site access. In 1976, he took a group of students down to Peacock, and there wasn't the nice parking lot like they have now, nor all the amenities such as picnic tables and everything. In those days, divers just parked directly over the cavern. Mm -hmm. But what was the same as now is that by the time they arrived, there was as many vehicles and as many divers on site as we see on a busy weekend today. The catch, though, is not one of them was a certified cave diver, nor were any properly equipped for cave diving. And this was all too typical at the time. It's no wonder they were losing so many open water divers in those caves. Yeah. Yikes. You know, Sheck mentions that also in his book, Taming of the Slough. You know, he talks early on how just tons of divers would be at a lot of these little uh, springs. Harry says that today the situation is very different. Many of our most popular northern Florida cave diving sites are state and county parks with rules in place to keep unqualified divers out. Others are privately owned sites with similar rules, even at sites like Little River where there is no official presence to police rules, unqualified divers who show up risk having their butts chewed out by big, <laughs> scary-looking cave divers who don't feel like ending their dive with a body recovery. This situation has been in place since the early 1990s, and he says it's a major factor in why we don't have the plethora of open-water diver fatalities that we once did. So shaming of open-water divers going into the caves has been a good thing. You know, it's kind of like the, the, the only thing that's keeping a lot of these divers out of the water. Yeah. Is that it's, you know, uh, hardy old cave diving veterans aren't afraid to. Well, it's peer pressure, too. Yeah. It's not, it's not just the cave divers giving them grief for doing that. It's, it's any diver who knows that cave diving requires, A, special training and, B, special equipment, and or you end up dead. Right. And yeah. it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to tell you, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Like trying to go into Little River with a neon green single aluminum 80. <laughs> your snorkel. And your and, snorkel. And your split fins. Hey, I've got my Air McDoodle on, though. Yes. Hey. I could always go to this in emergency. <laughs> or a pony bottle. Spare air, pony bottle. It's not a scolding just because somebody doesn't like your equipment. It's because there was a day that those actions led to a lot of fatalities. Well, yeah, the false confidence in, in that equipment, in recreational, you know, <laughs> recreational class equipment. Uh, that's bad news. Right, and then this was a day like in the 70s mm -hmm. when equipment was nowhere near as savvy even as it is today. And it's, I mean, you, you've got your choice of, you know, 10 BCDs by every manufacturer nowadays right. of, of ones that appear to look super tough and rugged and, and technical divery and right. cave divery with a with multitude of D-rings and uh, big to old give that image. giganto stainless D-rings, yeah. Right, but there's more to the way the equipment evolved for the typical cave diving, technical diving configuration. 
that's widely accepted today. Well, I think the untrained diver, the untrained cave diver, or the unexperienced cave diver, inexperienced cave diver, or just diver, would look at that gear and say, all I need to do is get this, this, and this. And then, especially back in that that time, they, they didn't, you couldn't just go buy, like, for example, a wing, like we were talking. A lot of them were making their own wings, and the, the light source you needed, they were making those you, themselves. As a matter of fact, I used to make my own here. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot easier to get the equipment to go do it right now. But fortunately, I think, I think that peer pressure and education and the beginning of their training is, is working. They say peer pressure uh, changes people's behavior way, way quicker and more permanently than a law or a rule or regulation imposed. Well, I think peer pressure certainly helps curb a lot of behavior. You know, it's the, the, main, the main reason I'm wearing a mask in public. It's not because I think I'm going to catch coronavirus. It's because I don't want I don't want to be that guy that, that's being the asshole. Peer pressure, yeah. Um, I've got this. Uh, I found this PDF uh, from uh, from Jeff Bozanic of yeah. Cave Diving Fatalities, like a summary that they got put together. It's kind of cool. He's got this, you know, uh, PDF of a. Uh, basically a PowerPoint put together, you know, of a bunch of cave diving fatalities. And it's interesting uh, when you look at the age of uh, these incidents, there's a big spike in that young, (laughs) young young and dumb, dumb, (laughs) the young and dumb kids. You know, this is one of the curves you can look at as an aging man like myself. Um, I'm aged. Uh, uh, you, you can look is, at it with even a little bit more it, wisdom than me. As uh, an aged per, I'm an aged man. You are an aging man. <laughs> but it, it it goes down, 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 down after yeah. you get past yes. that mid twenties. You know, it's a continuous decline, and uh, the, the the fatalities are high in that mid twenties range when yeah. uh, you think you can do anything as you get older and wiser you know in in normal scuba you know there's a spike when you get into the the 40s and 50s just because the physiological effect right of but i I guess the saying goes there's bold cave divers there's old and there's old cave divers but there's no bold old cave divers Uh, right yeah yeah the uh well (laughs) I guess as you get older, if you're making it to the older ages, you've probably uh, done it because you've survived some of your stupid decisions and, and I guess, uh, feats, whatever you want to call them. But, yeah, um, that age group is, you're immortal. You're immortal back at, in their 20s, late teens even. You're immortal. You'll, oh, mid, mid-20s. Yeah, forget about it. I can't die. Do you know no. who I am? Right. I could. Uh, I'd taken on the world in my. 20s. Yeah, but then when uh, you know your friends start passing, and your buddies and people younger than you start passing, you're like, oh, well, maybe there's something to this being dead thing. It could actually get me. I think. <laughs> I mean, if it got old Bobby Joe, if it got old Uncle Joe. 
could get me. Now, he also mentions here that uh, today we've got safer alternative sites. In the mid-70s, he said, if you wanted to experience what cave diving was like in north central Florida, but without the same level of risk, you pretty much had one choice, Jenny Springs. Jenny was opened in uh, 75, and by then they had welded the grade in place to prevent unqualified divers from wandering back into the cave. That's a ballroom, yeah. but Right. right. So you can, you can go, you can be one of those completely basic beginner open water divers and go do a dive at Jenny on the ballroom side. Experience. And you can't get into the cave, right? Right. There you can experience big... the cavern, though. You, you can experience right. the cavern section, which is... You know, close. Gives you the uh, the the feeling. Well, yeah, for sure. You can feel that flow. There's the, then you like get out into the river right there, so you can do it. He says uh, Blue Grotto was open, but lacked visibility and amenities that you see today. Dive uh, Devil's Den would not open until '89. Paradise Spring was undeveloped, and there was no safe way to get in or out of the water. Orange Grove and Manatee had large open water areas, but there was nothing to prevent open water divers from wandering into the dangerous cave passageways. But today, he says, the situation's different. Devil's Den, Blue Grotto, and Paradise Spring all provide the opportunity for open water divers to get a feel for what it's like to cave dive, but without the possibility of accidentally wandering into an extensive cave system. Orange Grove and Manatee are state parks. These sites do lead to extensive underwater caves, but can pose minimal risk to open water divers, provided they follow the no lights rule. Yeah, the old no light rule is they don't allow you into the water with any lights. So once you start getting back there, you see how dark it is. And really, it's almost impossible to keep going. I mean, you can keep going by feel, but the the darkness is... It's basically, it's like a vacuum of light back there. So makes it impractical. And, and most people will turn just from that. Yeah, just because it's so dark and right. frightening without a light. So that, although it would sound at first go to somebody who's not trained, like that would be ludicrous to go without a light. And I think that's the point, right? Yeah, yeah. it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Well, the thing is, you're not going to go. That's right. You right. won't go without a light. He mentions Vortex and Morrison Springs in the Panhandle also provide open water divers with the opportunity to experience overhead environment diving without the risk of wandering into extensive maze-like cave passageways. The bottom line is, he says, that open water divers no longer need to venture into dangerous underwater caves to get a taste of what it's like. The sites listed here provide the opportunity to do so while posing little more risk than divers may find at their local rock quarry. Agree. Nice. Today, there's readily available training, is what he uses to, to close this flattening of the curve down. He mentions that of all the factors that helped eliminate open water diver fatalities in caves, perhaps none has been more important than the widespread availability of cavern and or cave diver training. Widely introduced in the 80s, the cavern diver course was aimed specifically at open water divers who were already diving in popular overhead environments. Designed for divers using 
using slightly modified open water dive gear, the course emphasizes the rules of accident analysis, basic ga- uh, basic guideline and reel use, buoyancy control and trim, and staying within clear sight of daylight. He mentions that the various levels of cave diver training were designed for divers wishing to go beyond the limits of just that cavern diver course. Knowledge and skills of diving in doubles, side mount, or CCR in caves, complex navigation, limited decompression, and more extensive emergency procedures is what you are going to find by doing the cave diver training beyond just a little cavern class. Right. Yeah, the cavern is just a taste of of overhead environment kind of thing. You know, I know a lot of people up here that I think are miss have a misunderstanding about what cave diving is and cavern diving training is. And if they went and really saw what, what exploring the cavern zone of a lot of these caves that we go to, would it would blow their mind about how beautiful it is. I mean, that, oh, yeah. that cavern zone in Peacock and Orange Grove, I mean, those are some of uh, the, mo- the prettiest sights that you'll have when you're, when you're coming back out. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things you don't think you'll you'll get blown away if that's the right word uh, by what it looks like under there. You know, it is just white rock for the most part, right? <laughs> it's white rock, a lot of white rock. Yeah. But so many people think that uh, it's your typical what you would see on a cartoon of a, of a cave right no it's, right it's, that you're barely you can like a tube of rock they don't understand that going in in a lot of those areas is such a big open room and then on a beautiful sunny day like looking back out the the light coming through the black around you the blue water like Oh, yeah. Uh, coming yeah. back out into the open water zone. It's a magical sight. Yeah, it's quite pretty coming out, especially when you do see that that exit. But even even the the cave diving, I I was unexpectedly drawn back to it all the time. I went into cave diving just to because of the skills that are necessary for cave certification, right? And I didn't think I would be like okay, I'm going to be a hooked cave diver, but but after I took the class, it didn't take long, you know. After I took the course, and yeah, it, it's something that you know you and I both every year you, you get that that yearning to get back down there and, and just get back in. Yeah, Calls well, that's that's a, a lot because we don't live there, <laughs> right? And, yeah, I know it. We only get us we get a a, a fix. You know, once or twice a year now. It used to be a lot more back in our young days, but yeah, it's once or twice a year maybe now. And um, you get your fix, and you and you have to come back to reality, which is ice and snow and um, you know, fifteen to thirty feet of viz, depending on a good what, day. Why the hell are we living here again? <laughs> Although the Great Lakes, I mean, the, the Great Lakes are uh, are unique and definitely have their own you know unique beauty yes, and draw they, they do, with the shipwrecks do. and and the visibility is pretty the good visibility these is fantastic days. out yeah. in the great lakes yes thank you zebra muscles thank you they get a bad Harry rap closes off by saying what really 
um, he says, what's really significant is this, he says. In the 1970s and 1980s, cavern and cave diver training were actually hard to find, at least by today's standards. This contributed to the body count. Today, this training is readily available. Divers need to go no further than Google to find extensive lists of active instructors in all parts of the cave diving world. And more importantly, he says, today it's widely understood that if you want to go cave diving, it's essential you get the right training and equipment. This mirrors what we had in the 1960s with the advent of entry-level diver certification. And in both cases, he closes, it's a good thing. Yeah, the numbers go down. Yeah. Yeah, with, with the right education. Right. Yeah, knowledge is power, baby. Just got to make sure you're getting the right knowledge. You can be, you can be given the wrong knowledge and, and with good intent, too. But it's not the best or most well-thought-out knowledge. But, uh, yeah, cave well, diving, I've, the courses have evolved to where they're at right now. So. Right, and I think that's a, a part of where... Uh, we need to get open know, water to do that. Uh, yeah, well, having the value of, of something like Google that you can start doing so much research ahead of time. Certainly, there's a little bit of the uh, analysis paralysis that can easily occur where you just take <laughs> in too much yeah. information. Yeah. But at least you can walk in to training and equipment purchases nowadays seeing and learning so much about the stuff whereas in the 70s you didn't have that luxury yeah yeah you were a blank slate though which is nice yeah for for an instructor so yeah i thought this was a kind of a cool little way to to get started on national cave diving month not only are we talking about cave diving we're also talking about flattening the curve, which we've been listening to since the beginning of this COVID mess to boot. Flatten the curve, baby. Just a couple weeks. <laughs> this is the new normal. When they started saying that this is the new normal, that's when we should have our ears should have perked up. Would you choose to live this way? <laughs> yeah. So. Oh well. Oh well. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, hey everybody. We hope you enjoyed this introduction to National Cave Diving Month, and we're going to be back at you next week with some more cave diving. We've got a couple more weeks of cave diving goodies. So I, I don't think this is a, this is a no-logbook dive. Nice. So we're still, we're still diving. And this was a great way to start with old uh, Jeff Bozenick's uh, stuff. Like I say, back in the day, that was he was one of my main sources of... Uh, Cave diving information, diving information in general. I mean, he's a pretty smart guy. He's got a lot of accolades and awards, and he's been in the industry for a long time, and he's, you know, he's helped out Dan. He's helped out, you know, other, the NOAA. He's written manuals, et cetera, et cetera. He's a, he's a big deal. Yeah, and still a current author, right? Yeah, he's still out there. He's still out there uh, doing things. So, yeah, if you get a chance, look up old Jeff, Jeffrey Bozanik. And I'm hoping I'm not butchering his name. You may have had it right with Bozanik. Bozanik. But I've always called it Bozanik, and I don't remember why. I thought I, I heard him in an interview or something. But anyway, good source of information. Smart dude. All right, everybody. Uh, we will see you 
next week. Safe diving and safe cave diving to you all out there. We won't see you. You will hear us. You will You'll hear us, us next week. <laughs> trying to be more truthful in everything I say. So, you can't say I will see you unless you show up at the Zoom meeting. I won't see you. Grand Masters. So, you'll hear us. You'll hear us next week if you tune in. Alright, cool. Later. Hey, not to switch subject, this is kind of funny. TCM's movie schedule, speaking of the inauguration. Here's the movie schedule on TCM today. Ode to Billy Joe from 1976 movie starring uh, Robbie Benson, Glynis O'Connor. You remember that one? Oh, I thought you were talking about the, the Piano Man. No, Billy Joe, not Billy Joel. But, uh, so you got Ode to Billy Joe, Polo Joe, 1936 movie at 8 o'clock. Fabulous uh, Joe, 9.30 a.m. from 1947. The Story of G.I. Joe, 1945 at 10.43. Joe Smith, American, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize Mighty Joe Young was a remake. Oh, yeah, baby. I didn't know that. I thought that yeah. was just like a, that was the original like a, with a new King Kong spinoff yeah, back in no. the 90s when that came out. No, when uh, I think King Kong came out in freaking. Well, yeah, King Rio. Kong came out in like the yeah. 30s. Yeah, so Mighty and then Joe they, Young They came remade out. that in the 70s right. and then, then a couple of times since then. But Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Young. So good old. Uh, it's Joe Day for good old TCM. the election of Uncle Joe, as my dad calls him. <laughs>